Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to finish this important chapter in John's gospel this morning with verses 31 to 36. So our text is John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36. And if you would, you can follow along with me as we read from God's word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time now in his word. Heavenly Father, we ask now very humbly that you would please work by your spirit to open our eyes to behold the glory of Christ in his word, to believe, to obey, and to apply what the scriptures teach concerning Jesus. We pray, Father, for the edification of our souls and the building up of this church. We pray, Father, that you would please help us to know the truth today. Please keep me from error. Please grant your people discernment. We ask these things confident that you hear us even now because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is sometimes said that repetition is the mother of all learning. If you've ever heard that phrase before, you probably heard it in school. <laughs> when your math teacher was telling you why you had to learn those multiplication tables for like the 87th time. Repetition is the mother of all learning. I heard that phrase for the first time actually in seminary, in my crash course six-week New Testament class, in which on the first day the professor said, if you don't learn by repetition what I'm teaching you today, you will be behind tomorrow, and then by Wednesday you'll be failing. There's only one way to learn, he said, and that's flashcard by flashcard. Repetition is the mother of all learning. And my professor was right, just like my eighth grade math teacher was right. Repetition is often practically wise. When we repeat something, whether it's a fact or a habit, it tends to stick with us over time. So whether it's your your vocabulary cards or your multiplication tables or lines from your favorite movie, repetition is the mother of, of all learning. But have you ever considered the spiritual value of repetition? When we read the Bible, it seems that repetition is not only practically wise, but also spiritually healthy. Think of how often God inspired the writers of Scripture to repeat themselves, to repeat important truths. The book of Deuteronomy, for example, is arguably the central point of the Old Testament. And what is Deuteronomy at its core? A repetition of the law. Moses gives the law a second time. Or consider the nature of the New Testament 
Gospels. Rather than one gospel record, we have four gospel records. Why? Well, in part because we need to see the ministry of Jesus from different perspectives, from different authors. But also, we have four gospels because God knew that it was necessary to repeat, to rehearse what is central to our faith, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So repetition is not only practically wise, it's also spiritually healthy. And this is good news, friends. This is good news because we are prone to forget. By nature, we do not stay tethered to the truth. By nature, we tend to drift, don't we? And so God, as a good heavenly father, reminds us, he repeats to us what is true. You see, this is how we should understand the Bible's use of repetition. It's not repetition for repetition's sake. It's repetition for mercy's sake. When the Bible repeats something, we should see the kindness of God working through his word by the Spirit to keep us faithful to him because apart from that, we would forget. Friends, all of that prepares us to approach our passage this morning in John chapter 3. Our text today is largely repetition. Verses 31 to 36 in John 3 do not contain new teaching per se. Rather, in these verses, the Apostle John summarizes what has come before. Like a master teacher, John repeats the truths of chapter 3. Why does he repeat himself here at this point? Because repetition is practically wise. It shapes us to remember the truth, but also it's spiritually necessary. We are prone to wander, as the old hymn says, and therefore we need the Father's call to remember, and so John repeats these important truths. Our aim this morning, then, is pretty simple. We want to pay attention to the repetition. We want to notice what it is exactly that John repeats. And not surprisingly, what John repeats has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. More specifically, John summarizes how Jesus relates to God the Father and how Jesus relates to the world. How he relates to the Father, how he relates to the world. Our outline then is going to follow John's lead. We're going to focus this morning on three ways that Jesus helps us understand who God is and how he works in the world. Before we get to that exposition, I want to briefly answer an interpretive question. Which John is speaking in verses 31 to 36? Which John is speaking? You may have a little footnote in your Bible at verse 31 about where the quotation from John the Baptist ends and where the Apostle John's narration begins. You have a little footnote in your Bible? In the original language of the New Testament, there were no quotation marks to delineate who is talking. You have to rely on the context. In the previous paragraph, it's clear that John the Baptist is talking. Verse 27 is his testimony. But which John is speaking now? 
For my part, I take it that it's the Apostle John speaking in verses 31 to 36. John the Baptist speaks for the last time in verse 30 with that wonderful testimony about Jesus increasing and John decreasing. That's the last time John the Baptist talks. And now in verse 31, the Apostle John returns to his narration. Why do I take that view? Well, notice the references to God the Father and God the Son in verses 34 and 35. You see that? God the Father, God the Son. That's characteristic of the Apostle John. You won't find John the Baptist speaking of God the Father and God the Son, but you will find the Apostle John speaking of the Father and the Son. So for that reason, I take it that the Apostle John is talking in these verses. You may not care about that note, but I do, and I felt compelled to tell you. So, with that note of clarification in mind, let's think about these three ways that Jesus helps us understand who God is and how he works in the world. We're going to start in verses 31 and 32 with Jesus and the knowledge of God. Jesus and the knowledge of God. John's summary starts with a reminder of Jesus' unique identity. Notice the contrast John establishes in verse 31. The apostle writes, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. You can hear the contrast there in John's description. It's the contrast between heaven and earth, the realm of God and the realm of creation. In the biblical worldview, this is a foundational distinction. Creator and creation, they're different. Heaven is the realm of God and therefore the source of truth. Earth, by contrast, is the realm of creation and therefore whatever belongs to the earth is limited or finite. So in verse 31, earth is not a moral category. John uses the word world when he wants to speak in moral categories. Earth, in verse 31, is a creational category. Whatever belongs to the earth is limited. It's constrained by its creatureliness. I don't know if that's a word, but I like it. Creatureliness. Whatever belongs to the earth is restrained by the fact that it is created. Again, this is foundational in the biblical worldview. There's a difference between heaven and earth. It's the difference between creator and creature, creation. But you'll notice in verse 31 that John is not speaking in the abstract. He speaks in personal categories. John is contrasting two persons. He who comes from heaven and he who belongs to the earth. And clearly, he who comes from heaven is superior. He is above all, John says, which means he has authority. Who is it that comes from above? Well, look back at verse 13, earlier in the chapter. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Notice how Jesus describes himself, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So who is it that comes from heaven and is above all? Answer, Jesus. This means Jesus possesses divine authority. In that creator-creation distinction, Jesus is on the side of creator. He's not limited by anything. 
Now, of course, Jesus is fully human. He is like us in every way, yet without sin. But even in his humanity, Jesus retains his authority as the man of heaven. He possesses exclusive and complete access to the things of God. This is why in verse 31, it says that he who comes from heaven is above all. Because Jesus, as the Son of God, both possesses and displays and reveals divine authority without limit. But think about what this means for the other person in the contrast in verse 31. He who is of the earth. In the creator-creation distinction, to what side does he belong? He belongs to the creation. He who is of the earth belongs to the creation. This is not the realm of knowledge, but the realm of limitation. To see the things of God, the earthly person must receive them from above. He doesn't have access to them. So, in the flow of John chapter 3, who is of the earth and speaks in an earthly way? The answer is John the Baptist, at least in this context. Remember, John the Baptist is a, is a prophet, the last of the Old Covenant prophets. John the Baptist speaks the word of God, but, but he does so in a secondary way. John the Baptist has not seen with his own eyes the heavenly realities of God's realm. John's insight is secondhand, you might say. John the Baptist, his insight is secondhand. This is why verse 31 says that he who is of the earth speaks in an earthly way. This means that John the Baptist has not seen the essence of heavenly things. His insight is restrained by his creatureliness. And this is true for all of God's prophets up until Jesus. They certainly spoke mighty things, but their insight, their revelation was not ultimate. Their knowledge of God was always limited by their humanity. John belonged to the earth, and therefore he speaks in an earthly way. From this, we might think that verse 31 is a critique of John the Baptist. Perhaps the Apostle John is feeling a bit envious of John the Baptist's status as such a significant person. And so this, verse 31 is, is the Apostle John's attempt to put John the Baptist in his place. That's perhaps what we're thinking. And we would be wrong. That's not the case at all. The point of verse 31 is not so much about John the Baptist as it is about Jesus. The contrast in verse 31 is meant to exalt the one who comes from heaven. In fact, notice where the Apostle John goes next in verse 32. This completes the picture. He who comes from above, to what does he bear witness? Verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Friends, verse 32 is like a peek behind the Trinitarian curtain of God's nature. Since Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh, he existed eternally with God the Father. Before time even came into being, the Son was with the Father. And in that eternal Trinitarian relationship, 
the Son shared the Father's nature. He is fully God. The Son shares the Father's glory. He is worthy of worship. And the Son shares the Father's knowledge. The Son speaks of what He has seen and heard. His speech is not second-hand, it's first-hand. Because He is God. So you can see the Apostle John's point in verses 31 and, and 32. He's not saying something negative about John the Baptist or any other prophet. He's saying something exalted about Jesus Christ. To put it simply, and we've learned this before, but remember, repetition is the mother of all learning. If you wanted to sum up verses 31 and 32, to know Christ is to know God the Father. That's the whole point of the contrast. To know Christ is to know God the Father. To receive Jesus' testimony is to believe the full, complete truth of God. Of course, not everyone receives Jesus' testimony, do they? Verse 32 reminds us of how dark human nature can be. By nature, we love darkness so that apart from grace... We do not receive the testimony of the Son. But for the Christian, grace triumphs over nature. For the believer, grace opens our eyes to receive the testimony of what Jesus reveals. Believers are born again. Remember earlier in chapter 3? Believers are born again. And through that new birth, we receive the testimony of Jesus Christ. We believe in His name. And in doing so... In doing so, we receive the very knowledge of God. To know Christ is to know the unseen, invisible, incomprehensible God. And to know Him in full. This means, friends, that there is no other place you need to look for truth or insight or wisdom or knowledge. You don't need to go anywhere else. To know Christ is to know the fullness of God. And knowing Christ is sufficient for all of life. But you don't know what I'm facing, Pastor. You're right, I don't. But I know Christ, and He's enough. So do you need wisdom for life? Jesus Christ has become for us the wisdom of God. Do you need comfort in the midst of hardship? Christ is our merciful high priest who has been tempted in every way like us, yet without sin, and he can sympathize with your weakness. Do you need confidence in the face of doubt? Jesus is the one who receives the prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you need strength to walk by faith for another day? Another perhaps intolerable, seemingly without end day, full of trials and unanswered questions? Do you need strength to walk by faith in that day? Jesus promises to never break a bruised reed or quench even the smallest ember of faith. All of those provisions, friends, all of those, wisdom, confidence, strength, comfort, insight, grace, all of those provisions are found 
in Jesus Christ. For he is the knowledge of God for us and to us. Listen, this is, this is part of the big picture application of this text. The doctrine of Christ, which is what we're talking about right now. We're talking about the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ is not speculative or academic. I had someone say to me one time, you preach about Jesus too much, but you don't ever help people with their practical lives. And I said, friend, I'm not sure that you know Jesus. The doctrine of Christ is not speculative or academic. This is not a subject for debate. This is not a topic of discussion for those who dwell in ivory towers. Friends, the doctrine of Christ, like all biblical doctrines, is for the purpose of godliness. It's for the purpose of living. The doctrine of Christ should make a difference on your Tuesday afternoons and your Saturday mornings. So the call this morning... You're supposed to put all of your application on the back end of sermons, they say. I tend to break the rules. Here's the whole application of the sermon, right here. This is the whole thing, right? Next sentence. The call this morning is to know Jesus by faith. That's the sermon. Know Christ by faith. Go to his word each day and anchor your soul in Jesus Christ. Read the Bible. And pray for the Spirit to strengthen you for whatever that day is going to bring. And when you're sitting there in your house reading the Bible and you're doubting that God's Word is doing anything at all in that moment, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. He is the Word made flesh. He is the knowledge of God revealed to you and for you. Remember that in Christ, God has revealed Himself Completely, and he's done so for your good. There's no other provision for life and godliness than the Lord Jesus. So go to his word and believe that in Christ you know the fullness of God. That's the first reminder Jesus and the knowledge of God. The second reminder comes in verses 33 and 34. Here the focus is on Jesus and the faithfulness of of God. Jesus and the faithfulness of God. Verse 33 begins with the acknowledgement of God's grace. There are some who receive Christ's testimony. They've been born again, and with new hearts and new spiritual life, they trust in Jesus. So verse 33 begins with an acknowledgement of God's grace. But you'll notice that the end of the verse adds another element to the picture. Look again at verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. To set your seal on something is to affirm it. It's to attest to the truthfulness of that which is sealed. So here in verse 33... This affirmation is applied to God. To believe in Christ is to profess, it's to testify that God is true. So notice the progression from verse 31 to verse 33. Since Jesus is the one who has come down from heaven, to receive him as the man of heaven is to attest that God is trustworthy, true, faithful. 
To say it a different way, faith in Christ is a person's testimony that God is faithful. Faith in Christ, your testimony of faith in Christ is to affirm that God is faithful. Friends, that's a good way to think about your personal testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. When we talk about our testimonies, we tend to put the emphasis on the personal aspect, don't we? That this is my individual testimony. We, we tend to emphasize the personal. And, and that's for good reason. You cannot be saved through the faith of another person. So you, as an individual, must be born again. And you must trust in the gospel. So we, shouldn't, we should not downplay the personal aspect of testimony in Christ. But at the same time, there is a Godward aspect to the believer's testimony. It's not just personal. There's a Godward aspect. Your testimony as a Christian is saying something about God. Have you ever thought about this before? Your testimony as a Christian is telling the world something about God. What is that something? It's the fact that God is true. That's what your testimony is saying to the world, that God is true. Every Christian, in a sense, is a walking illustration of John chapter 3. That God, by His Spirit, gives new life to sinners so that they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. When we believe in Christ, we testify with our lives that God is not a liar. That His word does not return void, praise God. And that his promises are being fulfilled right now in this world in the lives of real people through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ. Every Christian is telling the world that with their lives. So never underestimate, brothers and sisters, never underestimate the importance of having a living testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. That that testimony certainly says something about you, that you're a Christian, that you belong to the Lord. But even more importantly, that testimony, your testimony, says something about God. Namely, that He is true and trustworthy and faithful to His Word. Now, in the flow of the passage, there's a question that comes out of verse 33 that we ought to answer. The question is this, how do we know that God is true and trustworthy? This is actually an important apologetic question. Let me ask it in a different way that maybe makes it a bit more personal so that you feel the force of it. How do you know that your testimony of faith in Christ is not just religious make-believe? How does the Christian know that his or her faith in Christ is true in God. How do we know that it's true? Well, notice the answer in verse 34. Again, the focus is not on us, but on the person of Jesus. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent, that's his son, he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he, that is God, gives the Spirit without measure. Clearly, Jesus is the one whom God has sent. 
and his mission is described in verse 34 that he speaks the words of God. He speaks the word of God. This is why he's the word made flesh. He reveals God. This is what we've seen repeatedly since chapter 1. As the Son, Jesus reveals the Father fully and completely. But you'll notice in verse 34 that Jesus possesses the Spirit without measure. Did you see that? He possesses the Spirit without measure. What's that about? I thought that the Son was part of the Trinity. The Son is with the Father and with the Spirit, each one fully knowing each other and each one fully God. So why does God have to give the Spirit without measure to Jesus if Jesus is the Son? What's that about? Well, think about the Old Testament for a moment. Think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's messengers did not receive the Spirit without measure. Rather, in the Old Testament, the Spirit tended to come upon people for a specific task for a limited period, period of time. Judges 14 is a good example. Samson, the Spirit of the Lord, rushes upon Samson and he kills a bunch of Philistines, which is like the essence of his whole ministry. Right, The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. But Samson's reception of the Spirit was temporary, wasn't it? And it was limited to that one particular task. So that's, that's a good example of how the Old Testament works. The Spirit comes upon God's messengers for a temporary task in a limited period of time. That's not the case with Jesus. That's what verse 34 is saying. Jesus has been anointed with the Spirit without measure so that he is above all other servants of God. He is above all other messengers from God, even the heroes of the Old Testament. Jesus is greater than Samson, greater than Saul, greater than Isaiah, greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is not merely a prophet or a judge. He is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. Jesus does not save his people merely in an earthly way, like defeating Philistines. Jesus saves them in an ultimate sense, from sin and death and hell. This is why Jesus utters the words of God, for he is the Spirit-anointed Messiah. He's the Christ. Friends, this is how we know that God is true. This is how we know that our testimony of faith in Christ is not religious make-believe, because God has given us his Son. That's how we know it's true. In a way, every Christian is giving the same testimony to the world. And that testimony is this. God is faithful to his promises, and if you want proof of his faithfulness, look at his son. Look at his son, who has even redeemed a sinner like me. So what I want you to take away this morning, at this point, is how important and valuable it is to live with an intentional testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. I have a friend and he's going away to do what he considers to be mission work. But if you ask, he'll say, we're kind of going covert for Jesus. In some context, that is certainly necessary. But in his context, it's probably not. There really are no covert Christians, at least in a sense of having a testimony. 
There are only testifying Christians. Public Christians. Again, we know that there are times in missionary contexts where we got to be wise. That's, that's not the context I'm talking about. I'm talking about you and me today in Louisville, Kentucky. There are only testifying Christians, public Christians, Christians whose lives are winsomely known to belong to Jesus. That kind of public testimony is incredibly valuable, and evangelistically so. How do I make this case to you? Think for a minute about how many authority figures in our day have proven themselves untrustworthy. There's a chuckle. I could say let's make a list, but we'd be here till next week. Think about how many authority figures in our day have proven themselves untrustworthy. So from politicians to public health officials... It is, it is hard, increasingly hard, to live with any confidence that leaders are telling us the truth. And the result is that many people are skeptical of authority, aren't they? Many people are skeptical of authority. Increasing numbers of people view any and every sort of leader through the lens of doubt. And, and friends, that sadly applies from politicians all the way down to the pastor. Increasingly, people are seeing leaders through this lens of doubt. How are you lying to me? That's what we're always asking, right? How are you lying to me? That seems to be the natural disposition these days. How important, then, is it for Christians to testify with our lives that we know there is someone who is trustworthy? How important is it for us to use our lives to display that there is someone whose word is always true? It's massively important. This is near the front line of evangelism in 2022. Our testimony of faith in Christ is so much more than just a personal testimony. It is a light in a dark world that is desperate for someone who is true. So here's what we need to do. Rather than join the parade of skeptics in the world, and look, I, I feel that pull of the, of the skepticism too, right? Rather than join the parade of being skeptical against all sorts of leaders and any sort of claim of authority, let's do the countercultural thing and say to our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members and our friends, actually, I do know of a leader who tells you the truth. I do know of someone whose word is always unfailingly true. And then tell them about Jesus. Let's not join the parade of skeptics, friends. Let's demonstrate our confidence in Christ as a means of elevating the trustworthiness of God. Whoever sets his seal to this, whoever receives Christ's testimony sets his seal to this, this astonishing phrase that God is true. Amen. Let's live with that kind of testimony. That's the second thing Jesus reminds us about. It's the faithfulness of God. The third and final reminder comes in verses 35 and 36. We're going to conclude with this. This is Jesus and the purpose of God. Jesus and the purpose of God. 
We've talked a lot about the, the Trinity this morning, which is always good. There's one more Trinitarian gem in verse 35. Notice what the apostle writes. This is such a wonderful sentence. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. My wife and I love mountains, and when we go to places that have mountains, our kids get annoyed with us because we like to just stand still for a long time and look at the mountains. Verse 35 is a Bible mountain. We could stand here for a few minutes and just look at verse 35 and think about what it means that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What a thought. The Father and the Son have existed eternally in fellowship with one another. And verse 35 declares to us that that fellowship is marked by love. It is God's nature to love. And he didn't need you or me in order to demonstrate that nature because he loves his Son. That's staggering. Think of what this means, though, for the Christian who loves Jesus. Think of, what this, think of what verse 35 means for the Christian who loves Jesus. When we love Christ, we join with God in the thing that gives him the deepest delight. The exaltation of his son. Verse 35 says the father loves the son. So when we love the son, we're doing the thing that gives the deepest joy to God. Exalting his son. Friends, this is why... This is why growing in your love for Christ is among the most God-honoring things you can do as a Christian. This is why you ought to read your Bible each day and pray to the Father each day and confess your sin to the Father each day and gather with Christ's people every Lord's Day. Are those just religious duties that make you better than the guy across the street? No, not at all, actually. Those practices are the pathway to loving Jesus more. To know him through his word, to commune with him in prayer, to submit to him through confession and faith. Are you pursuing those things, friends? I, I, that's not a throwaway question. Are you pursuing the word and prayer and confession and fellowship each day with the Lord? That's how you grow to love Jesus. And verse 35 says that's the most astonishing thing in the universe that you can do because the Father loves the Son. We should also note the outworking of the Father's love in verse 35. Follow me here for a minute. Because the Father loves the Son, verse 35 says... He has given all things into the Son's hand. So I want you to note love and authority coming together in verse 35. Because the Father loves the Son, He has given Him all things. From the rule of creation to the outworking of redemptive history, Christ has authority over all. And that authority comes from the Father's love. Why does Christ uphold the universe? 
by the word of his power, because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Why do all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus? Because the Father loves the Son, and that Trinitarian love is moving history along to its final day. These are not theoretical musings. I know it sounds kind of, the, kind of theoretical. We're talking about something we can't observe. We can't see the Father loving the Son. But these are not just theoretical musings. Friends, this has the power to change your, your daily life, and I don't say that lightly. So consider this. Can the Father ever stop loving the Son? No. Absolutely not. For eternity past, the Father has loved the Son. And for eternity future, the Father will love the Son. The Father cannot stop loving the Son. Now, remember, verse 35, put love and authority together. The Father's love for the Son cannot fail. And that means the Son's authority, which flows from that unfailing love, cannot fail. Christ will rule over all things because the Father will never stop loving him. Since Jesus' authority flows from God, nothing, not even a Russian invasion, can derail the lordship of Christ. The Father loves the Son, and the Son rules because the Father loves. The Son rules because the Father loves. Loves. The Father's love will never fail, and therefore the Son's rule will never fail. Church, this is the firm ground under our feet as Christians. The very love of God that he shares within himself. Tomorrow when you wake up and there's like 18 notifications on your phone that something bad happened, and you think, what is going to happen today? When you wake up and that just wave of information hits you with, by the way, maybe don't look at your phone when you first wake up. Tomorrow, when you wake up, you can trust Christ will reign over whatever tomorrow brings because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. God's commitment to Himself is the bedrock of His commitment to you because He will not stop being God. Your life and my life and our church's life will not spin off into nothingness. Look, I could preach for many, many years, and I don't think I could ever proclaim a more stable, secure, and confident footing for our faith than this. The Son rules because the Father loves. It's astonishing. And that astonishing confidence reaches this clear and concluding declaration of the gospel. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There are two ways to live, according to the Bible, according to the Apostle John. There are two ways to live. There is the way of life, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Christ receive eternal life with God. Their sins are forgiven. Their hearts are justified by faith. Their lives are increasingly sanctified in Christ's likeness. And one day their whole being will be glorified in the new creation with God. That's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's to know God now in the present 
through Jesus and to be glorified with God in eternity to the praise of His glorious grace. That's the way of life. The other way to live is to disobey Christ by rejecting His gospel. Did you notice the change in verse 36 from believe to obey? Do you see that? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Why the change? Because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Because of the authority of Christ. The gospel on one level is a command. The gospel is the proclamation of Christ's authority. And upon that proclamation, every person is commanded to believe. This is why the Great Commission begins where it does. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples. The gospel is a proclamation of Jesus' authority. To reject the gospel, then, is to disobey Christ. And in that situation, only one thing remains. Wrath. Verse 36 says very clearly that the wrath of God remains on the unbeliever. People do not receive wrath when they reject the gospel. People come into this world under wrath, needing a savior. What is God's wrath? It is his holy, active, righteous opposition to wickedness and sin. God's wrath is displayed in his punishment of the guilty. Where in his holy justice, God pours out retribution for sin. God's wrath finds its ultimate expression in eternal judgment in hell. Where those who do not obey the gospel of Christ suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. To reject the gospel, then, is eternally foolish and costly. Are you trusting in Christ today? Are you repenting of your sin and trusting that only Jesus' blood is enough to secure your forgiveness and eternal salvation? Friend, this is, this is the purpose of God. The salvation of sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. God, by His grace and in His love, determines to save those who only deserve wrath. Are you, are you trusting in Christ today? Repenting of your sins and banking on Him. I mean, on the authority of God's Word and with eternity hanging before you, I would just call you and plead with you and pray for you to turn from sin if you don't know the Lord today. To turn from sin. And to trust in Christ and to be saved by faith in his name. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son remains under the wrath of God. Trust in Christ, friend. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just tell us the truth once and then expect us to remember it for forever? Aren't you glad that the Bible is spiritually nourishing repetition that's good for our souls. I know that I am. It's good to be reminded that knowing Christ means we know God completely and fully. It's good to be reminded that the gospel reveals God to be true 
and trustworthy. And it is good to hear again the most blessed news in all of the world, that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. I pray that you're encouraged in that today, friends, and I pray that you go out to face the week ahead, renewed in confidence in Christ and committed to living for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that gives life. Thank you for the gospel, which is unbelievably and wonderfully true. Thank you, God, that you are trustworthy, that every word of God finds its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would please strengthen our faith, renew our confidence in you, and use us, Father, in the midst of a world that is dark and in some ways spiraling, it seems, deeper into chaos. We pray, Lord, that we would be winsome, joyful, stable, faithful witnesses to the good news of Jesus Christ. And that you would be pleased, Father, to save many through the life and witness of the members of this church. Father, we pray that you would please bear fruit now from our time of worship. Help us as we sing praises to you here at the end. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.